It's Thursday, April 14th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, should we be measuring time differently now that we spend more time with digital technology and less with nature? Paul Ford has some suggestions. Plus, how the heck is Arizona iced tea still just 99 cents a can and not playing any nefarious shrinkflation games like the other guys? And a new study analyzing the personality profiles of absolute a-holes. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. We've all been saying it for two years. Time doesn't seem to pass like it used to. And what month is it? Did that holiday already happen? How can one year feel simultaneously like it lasted an eternity and also never happened? The pandemic has been doing some strange spatial perception morphine wackiness to our brains. But part of that may also be the way that we spend our time these days, so much of it online, plugged into our devices. You know, I talk a lot on this podcast and in life about holidays and seasons. I'm fascinated by the history of tradition. And at least in the competing origin stories for so many major traditions and holidays, there's one common thread uniting most of them. They were born out of a desire to celebrate or as a way to cope with nature. Spring traditions that might include offerings to the gods for a bountiful growing season. Fall traditions to celebrate the harvest and prepare for winter, acknowledging perhaps the symbolism in the death of plants to honor our ancestors and deceased loved ones. Midwinter celebrations that could give you something to look forward to in the dark, cold months. These traditions changed with the seasons, with the weather, with the natural world. Before technologies like artificial light, we were much more in tune with lunar cycles to help guide our way at night. Knowledge of the tides, of when a storm might be coming, was all so much more common and valued. Save select professions, so much of this just isn't necessary knowledge necessarily anymore. You know, getting in touch with it can certainly help some of us feel a deeper connection to our world, but it's very common to get by much of your life living in heated and air-conditioned spaces with artificial lighting, not needing to combat the elements, able to wake and sleep regardless of where the sun and moon are, and simply using your phone to tell you anything you might need to know about the ever-changing weather, not to mention as your primary primary tool for entertainment, work, learning, and communication. So is it perhaps time to reevaluate how we measure time itself? If days and years are based on the sun and other measurements of time were created by people who lived centuries before the internet and smart forms transformed how humans live, doesn't it make sense that perhaps we throw out the nature-based time measurements and refresh them with terms that actually reflect our lived realities today? That is the question asked humorously by good old Paul Ford over at Wired. Ford set out a whole new lexicon for our technology age, and most of these have very big thanks-I-hate-it energy, but they still made me laugh, so I am going to share a few of my favorites. First of all, there is no more day and night. Instead, it's light mode and dark mode. Instead of being tied to the 24-hour solar cycle, Ford says a person can opt into light mode and dark mode at any time. And like Maggie Smith's Dowager Countess on Downton Abbey, our new lexicon knows no weekends. 
Instead, we just have binge, aka the amount of time necessary to watch a streaming video series in its entirety. Now, I still maintain, as I have for like a decade, that we should use the phrase marathon instead of binge because it has less heavy connotations to it, but regardless, I like Ford's thinking here about weekends. Now, for smaller units of time, here's what Ford proposes. Hours are now pushings. Quoting Ford, it increments whenever a new notification or update is pushed to your phone. This allows you to easily characterize the quality of a so-called day. It was a long light mode and I got hungry around sixth pushing and went out for drinks. End quote. Minutes are now freshings, which is short for refreshing, and seconds are now brush knocks, quote, characterized by the sound of a Slack notification, end quote. But then, because remember, time is a social construct and we are redefining the math here, or rather throwing it out the window, we also have a decade, spelled D-E-C-K-A-D-E, decade, and that refers to, quote, the time spent watching someone make a live presentation on Zoom or Google Meet, a scenario in which tube speed is unavailable. End quote. Ah, and yes, tube speed is watching or listening to something at 1.25, one and a half, or double speed, as I know many of you are doing with this podcast right now. Ford has a few other units of time, specifically referencing the pandemic, election seasons, and internet drama, like the word for week will now be Bean Dad, as in the time it takes for a main character on Twitter to rise, fall, and flame out. Ford's example, quote, The Putin mommy poem already feels like 50 Bean Dads ago, end quote. And that one's funny because people on Twitter actually say stuff like that. And then Ford's most ominous term, log off, which replaces the word for death. Dark, man. But really, this whole thing was, you know, jokes aside, I would like to stick to our solar-based measurements, please. Anything that will remind us that we are a part of this natural world that needs protecting and not cyborgs ignoring all that we destroy in our wake. But maybe I'm just saying that because I didn't get enough sleep last dark mode. With inflation causing a rise in prices of, well, pretty much everything, a lot of companies have turned to shrinkflation to maintain their profits. Gatorade redesigned their bottles to be easier to grab and more aerodynamic, and also 28 ounces instead of 32, but it'll still cost you the same amount. But I mean, does the price really matter when your Gatorade bottle can now win next weekend's 10k race with how aerodynamic it is? Keebler Cookies reduced packages from 11.3 to 9.75 ounces. Some of Snyder's pretzel bags are smaller. Dove Body Wash has been scaled down by 2 ounces. And even most of the leading toilet paper brands come with, on average, 20 less sheets. And except for, perhaps, Gatorade's major bottle shape redesign, you're not likely to notice any of these all at once. You know, would you really notice if there are a few less sheets of toilet paper or a few less chips in a bag? But when almost everything in the store is starting to shrink in size or amount and still cost the same, or even more, you do start to notice. Which brings me to the very good question posed by the Los Angeles Times this week. How has Arizona iced tea gotten away with not reducing their cans size or increasing their price from 99 cents in 30 years. 
It's not because they're somehow immune to rising costs. As the LA Times points out, the price of aluminum has doubled in the last year and a half. The price of high fructose corn syrup has tripled in the last two decades. And gas prices are still extremely high, affecting delivery costs. Yet a 23-ounce can of Arizona iced tea is still just 99 cents. Not only is it cheaper than just about any other drink you could buy in a convenience store, including water, quoting the LA Times, if you could fill your car up with cans of Arizona green tea with ginseng and honey, it would be cheaper than LA gas by nearly 40 cents a gallon, end quote. There's no secret financial strategy at play. The company is simply staying true to their commitment to customers. Don Voltaggio told the LA Times, quote, I'm committed to that 99 cent price. When things go against you, you tighten your belt. I don't want to do what the bread guys and the gas guys and everybody else are doing. Consumers don't need another price increase from a guy like me. End quote. Voltaggio is lucky to be able to make that call. He owns the company in its entirety with his sons. Unlike most other non-alcoholic beverages in the world, he has not been bought out by PepsiCo, Coca-Cola, or Keurig Dr. Pepper. And, you know, he's right when he says consumers don't need another price increase from a guy like him specifically, because he may technically own an indie iced tea company, but he and his son's combined net worth is estimated by Forbes to be over $4 billion. So, yeah, they can probably take a bit of a hit for this period of time in order to win the long game of retaining customer trust and loyalty. And it is refreshing to see a guy like him actually recognize that. Though, admittedly, they might actually see profits rise or even out because if their product stays cheaper, more people might buy it instead of other ones that are raising prices or reducing ounces. And quoting again from the LA Times, Arizona has been committed to 99 cents since 1996 when it started printing the price directly on cans to stop retailers from raising prices on their own. But it's tough to run a profitable business with a fixed price. Arizona has used scale, technology, and constant tweaks to the business to keep costs down and revenues rising over the past 30 years. Some of the key changes, Voltaggio said, back in the day, only one factory made the huge cans. Now, there are multiple suppliers competing on price and can technology has changed to reduce the amount of aluminum in each by 40%. The company has streamlined operations using its own factory in New Jersey, which can churn out 1,500 cans per minute. Company trucks mostly make deliveries in the middle of the night to avoid traffic. End quote. They also keep their marketing budget super small, which is part of why the cans are in such a trademark bright color that has rarely changed over the years, and part of why they're so big. Especially in the beginning, when they didn't have the money for things like billboards and Super Bowl ads, the can had to stand out and advertise itself. Voltaggio also adds that, coming from a blue-collar background, he was working as a beer distributor when he first had the idea to sell iced tea, he knows how to budget, and he understands how people on a budget view price hikes. And he admits that their costs have definitely gone up, but won't say by how much. But the LA Times broke down a few possible figures. Like, based on the price of metal going from 5 cents to 9.5 cents a pop over the last 18 months, and them selling a billion cans a year, that's potentially a loss of $45 million. So their commitment to their great value of 99 cents is definitely challenging at the moment, but they don't show any signs of changing. Voltaggio sees it as a sense of trust. He told the LA Times, quote, It's like a price-matching guarantee. It says, trust me, I'll take care of you. End quote. Maybe that's a lot to ask of a can of iced tea, but in this economy, I think we'll take familiarity and reassurances from seemingly decent humans wherever we can. 
If there's someone in your life that you think is a real a-hole, a new study might give you the data that you need to back that up. In an actually totally real study published in the journal Calabra Psychology, researchers led by Brinkley Sharp from the University of Georgia surveyed 400 participants to uncover the personality profile of a-holes, which impressively the published study used the full word for. But we are a non-explicit podcast here at the Cool Stuff Ride Home, so I'm going to keep saying a-hole in an attempt to be slightly more safe for work. Participants were asked to think of the biggest a-hole they knew, which apparently no one had any trouble whatsoever doing, and then were asked to rate their perception of that person's personality, beliefs, and behaviors. Quoting Science Alert, What's interesting is how basically anybody and everybody has the apparent potential to be an a-hole, and if you aren't one now, you might well become one later. Approximately one-third of insult targets were identified as romantic partners, co-workers, bosses, family members, or friends of participants, while half formerly held such a role, the researchers explain in their study. While the field was broad, the a-holes identified in the study were mostly male and typically middle-aged. People perceived as a-holes were associated with 315 categories of offensive behavior across the participants' responses, which the researchers categorized into 14 broad themes. Aggression, anger, arrogance, bigotry, callousness, combativeness, domineering behavior, externalization of blame, immaturity, inconsiderateness, irresponsibility, manipulativeness, rudeness, and others, including hypocrisy and plain favorites. Sharp said, When we talk about behaviors, the a-hole was not necessarily being antagonistic toward people, but they just didn't really care about what others were thinking or how they were perceived by others. End quote. The study used the Big Five personality traits as a model and threw the traits like low agreeableness, low openness, and high neuroticism described by the participants. The researchers say they were similar to prototypes of psychopathic, antisocial, and narcissistic personality disorders. Now, that's not to say that the people we think of as a-holes necessarily have personality disorders. More of what the study was trying to get at was how specific we are when we deploy an insult or certain descriptor to a person. And even though there was a lot of variation in how people described the a-holes in their lives, there were common trends, and it was clear to the researchers that people do, quote, mean certain things by using insults or associate insults with certain characteristics. End quote. So really, when we call someone an a-hole, it might say just as much about us as it does about them. So I have not yet seen everything everywhere all at once, but I cannot wait because everything I hear about it is awesome. I mean, a sci-fi adventure movie starring a middle-aged Chinese-American woman as the action star? Heck yeah. Plus, the music in the movie seems amazing. The teaser trailer used Hold Me Now by one of my all-time favorite bands, The Polyphonic Spree, and the band Sun Lux just put out a 49-track album of the score that they put together for the movie, which includes music by Mitski, David Byrne, Randy Newman, and Andre 3000. And I just learned this. When the filmmakers had the idea to incorporate the song Absolutely, Story of a Girl by Nine Days, and therefore had to reach out to license the song, the band was so excited to be included that they wrote and recorded multiple custom versions of the track with different styles and lyrics to fit different parts of the movie. 
That is so freaking cool. I can't wait to see it. But that is it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.